It's been a while since I've seen the ground I'm so used to falling down And getting up, getting back on again Brad Kuhn, thank you for joining me and letting me interview you uh, I came to met Brad Kuhn when he uh, worked with one of my father's friends, uh, Dick Vox, on this book called Dirty Work, which tells the tale of them picking up the TWA 727 that was hijacked for over a month in the Middle East in 1985. And then the plane sat on the ramp for a couple of months before Dick Vox, my father, Carl Sealand, went and picked up the uh, the plane. And what was really cool was I had heard the story a bunch of times from my dad's perspective. I was in about seventh grade at the time. Seeing the work you did with Dick Vox on telling it from his perspective was immensely enjoyable to me. I mean, I, I finished this book, which is about 95 pages long, in about two or three hours the first day I read it. It was a super fast read. What I'm kind of interested in, aside from any uh, type of notes you might have about the particulars in the story or, or any research you did was um, mechanics of, uh, some people hire a ghost writer, but I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that Dick's, Dick found you as just to be a co-writer to help him put this story out. Did you know him ahead of time or did he reach out to you? How did you guys connect? Uh, Scott, well, thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be on uh, your podcast and thank you for, for thinking of me. Um, obviously the person that, that you, you should have on here is, is Dick. Unfortunately, he did pass away shortly. Um, I think within three weeks of the book being published, but um, I will be your, I'm, I'm more than happy to be the, um, sad second fiddle here. But um, to answer your question, Dick hired me as a straight up ghostwriter. Uh, this was a ghostwriting contract. He paid me to um, help him get his story told. Um, unfortunately, um, between the time we began to discuss this and the time we actually began to write it and record his stories, um, he um, was suffering from congestive heart failure and was on a fairly accelerated downhill slide that was affecting him both um, physically and cognitively. So what began as a, um, as a ghostwriting contract, by the time we finished the manuscript and I turned it over to him, it became clear that he was not going to have the luxury of, of shopping this manuscript around and trying to get it published um, traditionally. Uh, we also realized that he was not going that, you know, the, the, the time it would take for some additional traditional research to expand the book from the 95 pages that you see to a more, um, you know, lengthy manuscript. He just wasn't going to have the stamina to do that. So, you know, what we have here is, um, you know, the life story of an adventure that your, your father was part of. And, um, we, we barely got it out of Dick before he passed. In fact, the, the first three sales of this book were to his hospice nurses who purchased it on Amazon, and he was actually able to sign it um, before he passed. So he was able to recognize the, the benefits of being a published author before he passed. So the, to make a long story short, if, if that's possible at this point, 
Um, I was a ghostwriter. And when it became apparent that the traditional publishing route was going to be too long um, for Dick's current health situation, um, I offered to um, publish the book at no additional charge and market it in exchange for co-author credit. I'm always fascinated in hearing the mechanics of, of how that works. As far as this book is concerned, it's interesting that you mention um, the potential for adding a lot more to this to make it more than the 95 page book that it is, because I was thinking as I was reading it that there appeared to be a fair amount of work done just in getting it to those 95 pages. Like this could have been, you know, one of those long articles that you read in like outside magazine or the Atlantic or, uh, you know, of of a tale of high adventure that, you know, would have been, you know, the longer magazine article that you read, but uh, uh, I'm assuming it was you that added in the, uh, the, the brief history of the conflict in the middle East surrounding Israel and the, and the brief history of, uh, of hijackings up to that point was, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your research on that? Sure. Um, just a, a little, my background, I was a um, professional journalist. Uh, as I worked, I got started at the Wall Street Journal in Chicago. Um, I moved to Orlando to help start the Orlando Business Journal. And I worked as a reporter for the um, Orlando Sentinel um, big major daily newspaper uh, in the newsroom for a dozen years. So I have a, a journalism uh, bachelor's degree uh, from the University of Nebraska. You see the oars behind me, but yeah. um, I um, uh, wanted to make sure, you know, anytime I do a story like this, I don't like to have um, stories hanging out in space. And what often happens, as you know, um, when you're telling, when you have pilots telling stories, they're just kind of stories that that stand on their own. And and what distinguishes a book from a bar is, um, you know, one story between beers at a bar is great. But if you're going to try to call it a book, you have to have some sort of controlling narrative. And so I felt it was my obligation as the ghostwriter on this um, and ultimately co-author was to provide context. Why were all these hijackings taking place in 85? What was it about 85 in particular that made hijacking so popular? Um, What was happening in the Middle East at that time and in uh, Lebanon in particular? And how did we get there? So, you know, it was very important to me to place this story within the context of its times, the geopolitical context. Um, And that kind of, I think that, that I've always personally been fascinated by the whole history of, of you know, the Middle East, the creation of the, of the Israeli state, and, the, and all three um, Abrahamic faiths and how they interacted there and how it has contributed, as we see even today with um, Afghanistan and our 20-year war there. Um, very timely, I think, to be having this conversation as we as we withdraw from a from a protracted and, and frustrating engagement um, in the Middle East. It's, it kind of parallels some of the things we talk about in the book. I found myself being you know, uh, surprised at how much I feel uh, impacted and by what's going on over there. And having never served in the military or anything, I, I just feel impotent as to 
to to do anything i i you know i've heard different opinions and and this isn't a criticism of any any one politician or anything but uh you know a lot of friends in the service right now are reaching out and we're talking and they're struggling with their sense of meaning and purpose uh and and everything that's been done over there to to have it end like this where you know the taliban is retaking control and and gonna treat women and children the way that they have and and um you know and i'm not i'm not here to uh you know no it's terrible i mean but it's it also speaks volumes that after 20 years of assistance and a trillion dollars of you know military training and equipment and guidance um the there was no will within the country to defend itself the 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 government of the country that we had been protecting um turned it all over and said we quit and and you have to wonder how many more years and how many more lives you can invest in in a situation like that yeah and i i don't know the answer um you know one comment that was made from from a friend was that you know we've had zero deaths militarily in afghanistan since february of 2020 and so you know it's kind of counter to the narrative of like that this is a you know forever war i mean sure it's an investment in people but one of the things i'm kind of struggling with is if we claim to be on the moral high ground as a as a country you know that our that our ideals matter in the world then how do we not create the sense of well we're pulling out of there cuz it's too expensive because if the if the if the if the if, if the death toll isn't really a thing or a reason are we pulling out because of money and you know and and that, and and like like i said like like listen this isn't this isn't pointing finger at any one political administration i'm not playing politics uh i i I happen to just have a sense because we're friends on social media our views typically tend to be more closely aligned than than different it's just um i i just i'm really finding myself really unsettled by the present situation well and that's 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 one of the things that kind of one of the reasons I think I wanted to address the geopolitical context within the 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 framework of the hijacking of uh, TWA Flight 847. You know, all we ever really knew, I think most people knew, was what we had seen on the news, and I think even in a broader context, what we saw in the Chuck Norris movie um, and the subsequent. Um, Lindsay Wagner movie about the the hijacking itself, you know, and and we always kind of tend to rally around these things and 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 look at the tragedy of the individual event and not back up or and really look at how we got to that event. And I think that was like, I think long term, I think short term, the idea of getting Dick's story on on the page was the mission. But I think longer term, the significance of this book is going to be the, I think, the documentation of the context in which all of this occurred. And, you know, I think it was important to put it in the book because it established that tension. It, it um, I think it could be argued that, um, 
you know, TWA was had was insured. You know, these this plane was insured. They could have written that whole thing off and left it on the tarmac. So, you know, logic says they're not going to send their pilots into harm's way for an insurable loss. So on the one hand, we have this great story of risk and and um, swashbuckling. On the other hand, you have this sense, well, how much danger was were they really in? And um, I think that's why it was important to talk about what was happening at the airport around them, why there was a, a window, a narrow window of opportunity, where were they protected and where were they not? Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what was exactly the nature of the risk they faced versus the um, sort of the escalating adventure that, that occurs over, over time in exchange for a free drink at a bar. You know, that, that's a, that's, that's a really interesting point. And your, your point about this potentially having been an insurable loss. I, I was struck by that, you know, reading the book because I'm an airline captain today and I remember my dad's, he had a profound sense of duty towards his job in TWA. Like, I think he called in sick once in 20 years because he would preach to me, if, if I call in sick, then I'm just screwing the next guy down the line and, and they're going to have to go work and do the job that I'm not. And, um, and I, I have a hard time imagining pilots in the present day just not even 40 years you know fast forward into history uh going into a civil war zone to reclaim an airplane out of a sense of duty to their company i i just um maybe it's it's possible maybe it's plausible but it it there you know, and, and not to kind of be waxing nostalgic towards the old days, but I really think that there was this different sense of duty. And I as far as an, I think that's an area I would have loved to have explored more if Dick had had been uh, feeling better. And if if it hadn't if so much time hadn't passed or if I'd been able to reach some of the TWA executives um, when their memories were a little sharper, I was able to talk to former um, President Dick Pearson. Um, but but your dad had passed and um, so many of the people that um, were involved in the decision-making had passed. I tried, you know, TWA was a special, special place from everything I can gather. And um, I, I enjoyed very much looking into, I, I tried to kind of draw a comparison of the hijacking, you know, facing terrorists at home and abroad, because at this time, all of this was taking place you had terrorists hijacking a plane, and then you had two, not one, but two um, leverage buyout guys trying to take over the airline. So TWA and, and all of its executives were fighting this, this hijacking on the, you know, they worked their daytime fighting um, a hostile corporate takeover on two fronts, and then they'd be up all night fighting terrorists on Beirut time. And to me, I think while I may have gotten into this from the Richard, uh, from the Dick Vox angle, that's possibly the, the most fascinating part to me because it brings in the whole context of 
of Ollie North and and uh, Robert McFarlane and Arms for Hostages and the whole um, you know uh, Reagan era um, and 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 it was a fascinating time. I mean, that's I think again I think Nobby Berry, who is the was the at the time the Justice Minister of um, Beirut, he was also the guy that was kind of the unreliable. Um, negotiator in all this. He was the guy that was the U.S. contact in terms of keeping the hostages safe. And as we write about in the book, he was also at one point the, the chief um, pirate in the sense that shortly after um, Navy diver Robert Steedham was shot and his body was thrown out on the tarmac, um, it Nobby Berry made a move that on the one hand could be interpreted as trying to gain control of the situation by getting his people um, onto the plane and taking, you know, marshalling the hostages and getting them into safe hands. Um, on the other hand, he didn't turn those hostages loose right away because he had a political agenda that he had to deal with as the, the head of kind of the establishment uh, Sunni um, or Shia militia, the Amal, you know, facing the more um, radical um, Shia militia that, that had just formed uh, Hezbollah. And it was the Hezbollah hijackers that had taken the plane and it they were a little bit, you know, they had less to lose. They were less politically connected. And this was their time to shine, which is why they hijacked the plane. They had no other way to get the international attention. Nobby Berry um, had the added complications of being a political climber. He was a relative newcomer on the scene. He's still the, um, I believe he's prime, not prime minister, but head of parliament, head of the um, parliament in Lebanon right now, which is incredible. I mean, this is wow. the guy who was in charge in 1985 is still a top government official in Beirut, uh, in Lebanon uh, today. And he was the guy there that let the uh, hijackers go, let them disappear off the plane. But after those hijackers were removed from the plane, no other hostages were injured and they were they were clearly treated a lot better. But at the same time, they were removed from the plane and, and secreted around Beirut so that the, um, you know, Navy SEALs and other rescue efforts would not be um, feasible. Do you remember how long they were in the uh, the Amal's control before they were released? Um, I think I'm trying to think of how many days, though. I think the whole thing took like 21 days or something like that or close yeah. to it. And most of that time that the switch took place after a couple of days. So it was the original hijackers were only on the plane for a couple of days. So most of the time that the hijackers or that the, the captives were held in Beirut, they were actually under the control of Nobby Berry. OK. Um, as far as the. Uh the crew of the hijacked airplane. Did you make any attempts to reach out to John Testrake or Phil I did, but, uh, Unfortunately, John, both John Testrake and um, Phil Maresca. Forgive. What? The first officer was Phil Maresca. I did not reach out to Phil Maresca. I tried, uh, John Testrake had passed away of cancer. I also found out that um, the, the, the purser, um, Uli Derrickson. Yes, Uli Derrickson had also passed away. Okay. Um, and um, 
I, so I wasn't able to reach, you know, I kind of reached out to the, the actual crew. I did not reach out to the, the first officer. Okay. Um, I did try to, I did, I was able to reach after the book published. Finally, I was able to finally reach um, Carl Sealand from uh, your dad's flight. Okay. And he was able to add some insights and clarify some things that may have confused, um, that, that Dick may have conflated over time. Okay. Because once, once the memory establishes a narrative, it kind of smooths over conflicts to make that narrative more coherent. And I think there were a couple of instances where Dick's memory was um, a little bit foggy on things. Do you have an example of one of those that stood out? Well, the best the best example is that, you know, contemporary accounts by Dick um, in the media talked about how the plane was in, in relatively good shape on the inside. Um, in the book, you know, he talks about how all of the seats were shredded and, you know, everything had been stripped out of the plane and, and all of that. Well, um, Carl told me later that the plane physically inside was was in decent shape and that you know we i've got some pictures from dick that shows him in the cabin or in in the passenger cabin and it was in fact stripped fairly bare um but carl said no that wasn't the way it was when we flew it back and so he was suggesting that perhaps um you know dick had been able to get onto the plane after it had been turned over to the fbi and the fbi was disassembling the plane looking for bombs and things like that and that the okay. the, the pictures some of which are in the book um were actually taken after the fact after the plane had been recovered and turned over to uh, government authorities and, and what supports that claim is, if you think about it, they all flew in uniform. They were all wearing the, the uniforms with the epaulets. Um, but yeah. then when you look at the picture of Dick in the cabin there, um, looking things over, he's wearing like, a, looks like a members only jacket. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm looking, at, I'm looking at the picture right now. So, I mean, I think in his mind, it was absolutely real. That was the condition that the plane was in when they recovered it, but that was not Carl's memory. And um, it makes it would make sense that if it all happened kind of all at once and then, you know, several years passed that maybe Dick may have confused which you know, at what point the plane was stripped. So not not to get pedantic about the, uh, the technical aspects of book producing, but I, I find it very interesting. Um, I. I've got one of the first printed versions of this book. Um, and I remember reaching out to you uh, shortly after it came out because um, I, I was really interested and excited and, and very happy to be able to talk about it with you. Um, and uh, I've got this, I remember correcting this picture right here where, and, and in my version, it says Carl Sealand finds one of the cabin pillowcases, you know, but it's got three stripes. And I remember having this picture, you know, my dad having this picture and, um, you know, and that, that was just kind of, uh, also speaks to the, uh, to the sometimes sophomoric nature of my father, uh, that, that he would put on the, the, the terrorists, uh, you know, pillowcase, uh, as, as a joke, but, I was really interested uh, that you were able to just go in and edit things on your end and, 
and subsequent versions of this book that I've given out to friends, you know, it says Jim Corley finds one of the cabin pillowcases. And so have you done the same with these pictures of the cabin? Have you have you changed that or do they No, because, it, you know, at the very beginning of the book, you know, it's like my job as as co-author and as ghostwriter initially is to try to um, verify as many facts as I could. Yeah. And um, for the most, I kind of put a disclaimer up there that says, you know, this was Dick's story. I mean, this was Dick saying, uh, you know, Brad has my co-author has spent a, a considerable amount of time trying to verify all of this, but there may still be, you know, memory being what it is. This is how I remember it. There may be, you know, yeah. some anomalies. If so, I'm sorry, but th this is my story and this is how I remember it. And I think in situations like that, where, you know, it's, it's, he said, she said, whatever, I kind sure. of left it. But in that case, you were, you were absolutely right. You could show the verification. Okay. The, the, the shoulder insignia there is very clearly the first officer. Yeah. Um, and that was a documentable uh, correction that I could make. And because these books are printed, um, print on demand, basically the, the book doesn't exist until it is ordered and then it is printed to order. Yeah. Um, there's no inventory of books that needs to be corrected. So as soon as I can become what was made aware of, of a, an error, a verifiable error, I went ahead and fixed it. And every subsequent copy was um, reflected okay. the updated information. As an author and a ghostwriter, are, are you excited about the 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 present day shift to that style of book production? Or well, yes and no. And here's here's why. And we, we may be getting a little bit um, didactic about it because not everybody cares as much as, as I do or maybe you do about publishing. But um, say back in 1970, when you'd go to a bookstore at the mall, Little Professor or B. Dalton booksellers, and there might be a thousand to fifteen hundred books on the shelves. And most of those were those were all put out by the big publishing companies. There were 25,000 total books in print in the world, and the rest were older books that didn't sell. So they, they were no longer in print. They had been remaindered, and, and you just couldn't get those books except used. Yeah. And there was a whole series of bookstores where they trafficked in used books. Well, then the big box retailers came along, and, and now there was room for 100,000 um, books on the shelves. And so now all of a sudden there were more books in print and they, they were less likely to take the books out of circulation. Well, then Amazon and Barnes and Noble online and all these folks started coming up with print on demand. And so now pretty much any book that's ever been printed, including, you know, that they have over, I think after 99 years, um, a copyright expires. And so yeah. a book becomes public domain and can be printed by anyone for free. Okay. You know, so, and, and so now virtually any book that's ever been in print can be um, put up online as a print on demand. And so on Amazon, there are more than 60 million books in print. Wow. So wouldn't you rather compete against... 25,000 titles um, versus 60 million titles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so on the one hand, it really lowered the bar, the, the barriers to entry, and has made it much more democratic because you don't have to go through the gatekeepers anymore. Now, if, you, if you're like me and you have a background in publishing and you produce um, professionally designed um, and edited books, 
it's a great opportunity. Um, but it also creates an opportunity for people to kind of slap, you know, slap some stuff together, um, half-ass a cover and, and put it out there. So there's a lot, there are a lot of books out there that just, you know, probably shouldn't be. And, and you know, I'll tell you that of all those 50, 60 million books, um, to be one of the top 10,000, you only need to sell 20 books a week. Okay. <laughs> so most of the books out there are not selling that much. Um, yeah. Even the ones put out by the big publishing houses, it's very, very, a very small percentage of the books put out even by the big publishers, you know, sell a hundred thousand copies. Well, it's like the, uh, what, what is it? The, uh, the Matthew principle, or it's a Pareto distribution where, you know, success builds upon itself. And to those that have more more will be given and just, you know, there's, there's only so much uh, attention span, you know, from the collective hive, you know, the hive yeah. mind that is, you know, our, our human consciousness and where we focus it. And so, you know, but one of the things I'm, I'm, you know, trying to do with this podcast, well, first and foremost, I'm guided solely by my interest, but given that I am a pilot, I'm going to be focusing that interest a fair amount on things related to aviation and airlines and whatnot. And not always, like I just had a great friend with a, or a great conversation with a, a friend who just opened up his own Chevy dealership in North Carolina that he owns, which that's no small feat to go from a kid who, you know, was enlisted in the Marine Corps to, you know, building up to that. And I, I think that they, that's an interesting story, but, but pivoting back to talking about aviation, um, I know that there are a ton of great aviation stories and, and, and something you said about 10 minutes ago really resonated with me. You talked about, you know, stories at the bar over a beer and, and you helping mold this into, you know, an actual printable story. And, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, are you still in the market for ghostwriting? Is that something you're still interested to do? Cause if, 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 if my, if this podcast or interview meets any of my, my goals that I would like for it to achieve, as far as, you know, being seen in the uh, aviation community, uh, I know that there are plenty of people who have more stories to be told. In fact, I was just flying with someone the other day who was, you know, had so many fun stories of Bush flying up in Alaska that he said, you know, a friend of a friend and his were talking about starting a book. Like, is that something that you're still interested in? Very much. I mean, it's, I've actually written um, more than a dozen uh, ghost written books. Um, the book Dirty Work is one of the few that has my name on it. In fact, it was kind of strange after Dick passed where I was going around speaking to TARPA and some of the other pilot organizations on his behalf because he know he wasn't around to do it himself. Um, it was strange to be the author out front because I'm usually the guy behind the scenes. Um, I love the craft of making books. I make good books. Um, I love crafting the covers. I love making sure that the content is um, pristine, that the book is well designed and, and that the design and the font, everything down to the fonts, you know, match the personality of the book. 
I like doing audio books where I find just the right voice. You'll find that there's an audio book of dirty work. And I've got a guy who, you know, it's very, um, he, he kind of has his own like right wing radio show where his sponsors are Ollie North and the NRA. And he's got that real gruff um, kind Present. of soldier of fortune voice that's perfect for telling this tale. Um, but I put, I produce eBooks. I produce print on demand, both on Amazon and on um, Ingram spark, which is the one that, you know, bookstores go to Ingram when they want to carry a book in the store. Okay. Um, and then I work with audible um, to put um, audio books out, but it's a, it takes several months of my life. This book took six months to, to put together um, so it's, it's a big, uh, financial commitment on behalf of the, the client that wants to do this. And, um, you know, for Dick, that was, he was willing to make that investment. That's, that's really neat. Um, pivoting back more central to the, to the story. Um, one of the things that popped up here is the, um, the sense of, camaraderie that exists you know dick vox talks about how he called john testrick to let him know that he got the plane back and uh and the sense of camaraderie that he had and then also um oh, i forget the name but when he called his uh his friend in flight ops who he didn't realize he had the uh the the phone on speaker and and the whole board of directors was listening as they were giving each other, you know, the business and sharing expletives to each other. And then everything breaks out in, a uh, in laughter. Um, yeah, that would be Dick Kenny. Yeah. And I'm just sort of struck by the sense of, uh, you know, camaraderie that is built by the, the, by in delving into those tough situations by delving into the conflict, you know, someone who not to jump ahead, but I, I was also going to ask you at the end of this about your, um, uh, your interview with Paul Marhofer on, uh, on your, your trucking podcast that you do. And, and he writes that the pet, the best trucking songs are about, you know, a tragedy or, or all good stories. I've heard Aaron Sorkin say involve some sort of conflict and I'm just wondering what you think about, like, you know, it, do you think it's the nature of, of that? We, we, our sense of closeness that we, that we create with, with other people is actually through shared stories and that all good stories involve some type of tension and conflict, you know, uh, Va Dick Vox reaching out to John Testrake or the conflict that he has with, with his, um, with his friend in flight ops or, you know, I, I remember, you know, my, we went skiing with Phil Maresca, um, who was the first officer on the hijack plane, John Testrake's first officer out in Snowbird, Utah. And my sense is that all of that camaraderie is just built out of a, you know, a shared tension, a shared conflict. Talk about that in storytelling, if you don't sure. mind. You know, it, it, it is conflict, obviously, is, is central to any good um, story because it's that tension and the desire to see how the story ends. What happens next? What happens next? It's like, and then what? And then what? And then what? And 
you know, there's a hope that things turn out well. Obviously, in a case where the story is being told by um, the narrator, you know that the narrator survived. Um, but there is that kind of, you know, you kind of like to have those unresolved conflicts and a stepwise kind of progression toward resolution. Um, and, and it's funny, people don't necessarily know it, but there's a shape to a book where they're used to finding out and having things really start to come together in the action building three quarters of the way through the book. And so part of my job as a ghostwriter is to understand the basic shape of a narrative and to keep that contract, that un, unwritten contract with the reader so that their experience of reading a book checks with kind of their um, prior experience of what reading a book should feel like. Yeah. Now, back to the camaraderie and conflict, um, there is that sense of, of shared experience. People want to be able to relate to um, the experience of your protagonist. In this case, I think a lot of pilots were people that bought the book um, because they've, they've been there, done that. You know, he's, he was also a fighter pilot, as I think your dad was. Um, and having been through that experience as well, I mean, these guys all have their stories and, you know, they like to hear other people's stories and relate them and compare them to their own. Okay. Well, he was in William Tell. Um, then how did he do, you know, I know that I finished this well, then, you know, how did he do and what were the conditions and, you know, and then he, they'll tell the story about, you know, losing track of a, of a, of a missile and having it hit a shrimp boat and all the other pilots will either call shenanigans or believe it, you know, and I think even if they don't believe it, they can appreciate the gift of gab that goes into into the telling of the story because they've all, they've all kind of embellished their own uh, narratives and legends as well. So there's, even if the story doesn't prove to be a hundred percent true, they respect the telling of it. Um, <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's a, that's a great way to put it. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of rekindling the sense of uh, when I was a flight instructor at Somerset airport in Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, one of the coolest things about that job would be the days where the weather was too low to go out flying and maybe some students has can't had canceled and you're sitting around the airport with, you know, yourself and, and on good days, uh, a lot of, you know, some older and more experienced pilots who are just, you know, spinning yarns, telling stories, uh, most of which are true, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and it's really funny that you say, respect the fact that they told the story because, you know, this one of the, the, the tribal elders at the airport was a guy named Lou Rear. And uh, there's actually a book written about his tales in World War II called Marauder. He was a highly decorated B-26 pilot. And I didn't know any of that at the time. Lou was just an old guy to me, you know, and he, he's, he was a designated examiner who gave me my, my private pilot's license when I was 17 years old, uh, when I was a senior in high school. And he was just really quiet, but he was always had a smile on his face and, and, and he would sometimes 
listen. Sometimes he'd be in the other room. Sometimes he'd just be sitting in the room and listening as us young cocky flight instructors were flexing our knowledge by talking about certain things and trying to sort of one up each other in, in a, in a, in a, an all too common for that level of experience, uh, you know, you know, trying to show off our, our feathers, so to speak of, of, of how much we knew and what stories we had and, and what we did with this student and that student. And, uh, and, something about just what you just said of respect the fact of telling the story is just there was such a generousness of his wisdom you know and it was actually quite humbling for me after i had worked there for i don't know six months to a year they had his 80th birthday party and they put up all these displays for all of the things that this guy had accomplished in his life that I had never known, you know, multiple distinguished flying crosses, uh, the, uh, the French version of the distinguished flying cross setting glider records in the sixties uh, for, for, you know, gliding an aircraft for over, I think 24 hours. And, and he flew a glider from Boca Raton, Florida up to Tipton, Georgia, and just had done all these amazing things. And here I've been, <laughs> you know, trying to look like, you know, Mr. You know, great pilot in front of him. And it's quite embarrassing, but I, and I'm, I'm rambling on a bit. We'll see what gets edited out of well, this. Let me, but. let me share maybe a tangible example of a story and how it goes from plausible reality to pilot legend. Um, Dick tells a story in the book and he tells it as fact. And for all I know, it could be fact. Um, but this is his story. So therefore, it's 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 fact to him. But there was he was a um, before he flew for TWA, he was a. Um, uh, a pilot in the uh, Maine Air National Guard um, and they would fly training runs, you know, along the East Coast and there was a, a bridge there in Maine um, called the Bucksport Bridge. And there was legend around the base and had been for years that, you know, of pilots and their daring do who would, you know, fly under the bridge on, you know, up the, um, uh, the Penobscot River and, and uh, um, you know, buzz the tank, you know, fly under the bridge and buzz Bucksport and head back to base. Well, you know, I mean, that's obviously potentially problematic if you do that. And so, you know, that constant asking of, and then what, and then what, and then what, and the story as Dick tells it, you know, it's not that he heard a story about somebody who did that, or that they always wanted to, it became, he did that. And then it's like, well, okay, how do you address the fact that if you did something like that, they would bust you bad, you know, for taking that kind of risk with government property, and they would kick you out, you know, or at least, you know, clip your wings for a while. Yeah. So the story evolved into he didn't only fly under the bridge once, but he flew under the bridge twice and did two loops. And it was the second pass under the bridge that saved his career because he was flying solo. And the report was that two jets flew under the bridge. So this story became plausible. You know, it had it had a realistic ending. It's like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, when they would call to complain, he had a he had plausible deniability, but, you know, realistically, you're a pilot. Um, 
you know that that a young young man full of testosterone would certainly want to do that. You also know the uh, severe amount of trouble they would get in for flying under a bridge with a deck 300 feet off the ground. <laughs> yeah, at, at, you know, at mock speed and then pulling up and doing a loop and then not only doing a loop, but getting their bearings again and coming around for a second pass right outside of a town. Um, so I, I don't know that the story would hold up under scrutiny, but you have to respect the telling of it and the way it has evolved over time. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just, just like I, we talked about all good stories have conflict. I, I have a, you know, just in listening to that story, just a little sense of an internal conflict because part of me, you know, sort of agrees with you, with your sense of like, eh, this might not have happened because the risks or whatnot. But, but, but one of the things I'm wondering as you're saying it is today in 2021, yeah, you definitely do not fly a military jet under a bridge unauthorized, uh, in in Maine, close to civilian populations. But I, I do have a sense that back in the early 60s, that there might have been a little bit of a different culture, which which lends a little bit of plausibility. Now, as far as the double loop, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know. I, I I would I would definitely lean to he definitely flew under the bridge. Uh where it goes from there. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I respect the story. You know? But what's also interesting is that the stories he didn't tell, you know, he told that story. He told the story of dropping a bomb through a shrimp boat during the William Tell games. Um, but there were stories that really happened to him that he didn't tell, like um, cartwheeling a plane that, that malfunctioned on, on uh, landing, where the landing gear didn't um, fully lock in. It said it was locked in, but they could kind of tell from the sound that it hadn't. And as it landed, it crumpled and the plane cartwheeled and he did some pretty amazing things to avoid um, injury to himself and his two seat. Yeah. Um, and, and there was some there was some actual amazing and heroic stuff that he did at the same time. You know, he'll talk about flying um, and teasing um, Russian jets over when flying out of a secret base in France and you know, others of the contemporaries of him said, no, you know, we never actually engaged the Russians. Others did. But, you know, in our in our you know, others that we flew with did. But our particular plane did not. And here's why. But so it's it's funny. He would he would downplay some of the legitimately awesome things. Yeah. Um, and he would turn some of these stories into almost set pieces, you know, like a comedian has his his tight you know, tight 10, yeah. 10 minutes of material. And I think pilots kind of developed their own tight 10 of, of uh, daring do. That's yeah, that that's really, I, th I think that that's a, a, an accurate mental model. Hey, do you have any recollection he mentions in the book uh, about flying a TWA 707 near the border of, uh, was it Iraq and Iran? Um, yeah. Did, did you do any research on that one? No, because and, and it was hard. It was one of those that was hard to trace. He was flying cargo. And he said that often you would have military top secret military cargo that would be in a plane. and It would be undeclared. And he was saying in that particular case, the whole plane was, um, 
you know, flying without identification, um, but it was easily identified um, by visual reference from the ground. Um, and they were trying, he was trying to fly along the border to deliver this cargo. They were being told to land the plane, land the plane, land the plane. And he just pushed through and was able to get safely to its destination. Okay. That's another story that, that is him recounting another tense moment uh, in his career. It's a story that I know for a fact that he told numerous times. It's not one that I could um, could verify because it was kind of one of those things where the the cargo, which he assumed to be munitions, was not supposed to be on a civilian plane. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there, there's not a lot of official record that I could go to. I um, So, you know, I have to take his word for it. And that's where it kind of defaults to this is his book. I am his instrument. I am his pen. I am, I am his typewriter. And my job is to produce a cohesive narrative and kind of work some of the rough edges that will um, get others to call, that others would definitely call shenanigans on and, and claim that that's not true. So that's one of those stories that, that he says it's true. I have no reason to believe it wasn't. Um, sure. it, it passes the sniff test to me. And it seems like that's certainly something that, that could plausibly have happened. Um, and. Oh yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, especially back then, you know, many of the well-known carriers were doing, you know, a lot of work for the military. I mean, I, I read um, Robert Gant's book, uh, Sky Gods about the fall of Pan Am, which, you know, that, the title says the fall of Pan Am, but the book really strikes me more as the the story of the total arc of Pan Am and uh, the amount of work that they did, uh, you know, in Vietnam was, was really, you know, awesome. I mean, just awe inspiring as far as, uh, you know, nowadays you think of, you know, C-17s moving troops back and forth and whatnot, but, but back then it seemed like most of the airlift was really done by, by airlines like Pan Am and TWA. Uh, sort of wrapping up this book, and, and I, I just after this, I, I'll have. I just want to talk a little bit about your podcasting endeavors. Did you have a chance to talk to Carl Sealand about the wire harness issue? Um, yeah, he he basically said that. Um, he has no re he has no personal knowledge of it, but he had no reason to um, question what Dick said about it. You know, yeah. and, and and so, you know, again, that's one of those things where the the sands of time have kind of scoured people's memories. Um, you know, as flight engineer, he certainly would have seen what was happening on the instruments. Um, you know, it was. It was my conversation with Carl that led me to kind of delve deeper into some of these other stories and, and recognize that that um, the Dick's memory of them may have molded it in a different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it's like you said, you have to have conflict in every story. And I think he had a sense of, you know, what makes a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Listen, to just wrap up on this book and for for anyone listening who is potentially uh, looking for a ghostwriter for their book, um, if I'm hearing you right, 
this is the one of the very few books you got the co-author credit on because you do more of your work in ghostwriting, which uh, probably is harder to market than um, I'm guessing. But yeah, all of my business comes from referral. Okay, because this is I, I don't know that I've read a book this quickly. You know, I mean, for the length of it, it's just um, and I've got the type of brain where I might finish one out of four books that I start, because if I'm not interested in it, I cannot keep reading it. And, and I just, I think you did a superb job as far as the, the flow of the writing, you know, uh, everything just flows so quickly. Um, and to me, that's, that's the sign of a great read that you can finish it, you know. Thank you, Scott. I just, I love what I do and I always have great respect for my clients and co-authors and that, uh, you know, it's, it's their story. My job as a ghost is to be a ghost, but by the same token, I don't want to get them in trouble. I, I respect their story, but I also try to make sure that the way we tell it doesn't come back on them in a way that, that has an unintended consequence. That's great. If you're still listening at this point in the conversation, I'm hoping that on some level you find listening to be of some value. All I ask in return for your enjoyment of this podcast is to share it with someone, anyone. Social media would be great, but sharing it with one friend would still be doing me a favor. I'm really enjoying this journey I'm on in creating this content. The best way you can help me is by subscribing to my podcast and my YouTube channel and sharing this content with others. Thanks so much for helping. All right. So tell me about your, uh, your project with White Line Fever. Sure. Um, in addition to the work I do in print, I do um, audio and um, video broadcasting. So I am an on-air personality for a um, company called the uh, Opportunity Media Group out of Oklahoma City, and they produce entertainment news and entertainment content for truckers, streaming news and entertainment. So it started as the Truck Boss Show, which is streaming video segments where I am their regulatory correspondent, and I kind of unpack some of the harder issues for them. Um, but I, they recently launched a podcast called, um, called BossCast. And as part of that um, podcast, I was asked to kind of do um, one of my storytelling ventures by um, looking into the origins of trucking music and dig up some of the um, sort of under, you know, lesser known um, stories behind popular or famous trucking songs, particularly uh, exploring the relationship between trucking songs and the history of country music. And I call it white line fever. And, and, and why do you call it white line fever? Well, that's number one, there's a song called White Line Fever, but it's kind of that whole, um, I tried to come up with something that would evoke that passion for the road, um, that that danger of the road, that kind of hypnotism of the white line down the down the middle um, without, you know, I didn't, I try not to be too on the nose, like with, with the book, I called it Dirty Work, because it, it just, you know, I look for that, that narrative title that, that tells you something about the book. And but without being too obvious. So White Line Fever um, was a story that was a was a, you know, people would know the title of the song, but it says so much also about what it's like to be a trucker that I felt like it did a lot of heavy lifting as a title. Yeah. Um, I felt a 
particular kinship in listening to Paul Marhofer because you have a sense that there's um, that Marhofer comes from a different, you know, a different clan than most truckers that he's that he's coming from like this intellectual class of people, but he just can't make his brain fit in with that. And he finds, you know, something soothing and calming about, you know, uh, the manual labor. Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of uh, very evocative of like, um, you know, when you hear Mike Rowe talking about dirty jobs or, or something, and, and I'm not, not to call trucking a, a dirty job, it's most certainly not, but it certainly is, you know, more boots on the ground, hard labor and hard work. Um, yeah, John, John Marhofer is an interesting story. He's an interesting guy. Um, like you said, he was an English major, something he doesn't talk about to his trucking buddies at the truck stop, but um he also is a long haul trucker and has been for a long, long time. He had a near fatal accident back in, I believe it was 2009. You know, he had a souped up truck and was putting in the long hours and living the trucker life and um, living a little fast and um, ended up in a horrific accident that they didn't think he was going to survive. And it actually gave him this incredible gravelly voice that kind of gives him like a, a haggard or a Dylan sound. Um, and he's, as he said in the podcast, he said, I wouldn't recommend it as a way to further your singing career, but he said it did turn out to, to give me a distinctive sound. Um, Marhofer, um, I think if you haven't listened to it yet, he has, he narrates uh, or hosts a, a podcast that's no longer in production, but it was there for about a year called, um, over the road or on the road, I think it was over the road. And it was um, host, it was produced by um, PRX, the, the public radio um, powerhouse and uh, Overdrive magazine. And so you can hear Paul actually serving as host and interviewing other truckers, plus telling some of his own stories in his own words um, on that podcast. And that's actually, um, I mean, it had millions of listeners and it won all kinds of awards. So I would I would recommend um, the the Paul Marhofer podcast. I'll I'll definitely check it out. So the most recent one you did uh, a six day haul from uh, six days on the road, and that's yeah. that's a pretty. I think in, almost anybody who's listened to any country music has heard that song because the refrain is basically or the hook is six days on the road and I'm gonna make it home tonight. That's that whole thought about, you know, that getting home to the wife, the girl, the family, you know, after a lot of work on the road, and it goes through all of the different things that, that the loneliness of the road, the, the hassles of the weigh-ins, the, you know, trying to make deadlines and avoiding getting, you know, caught speeding, um, you know, doing what you have to do to stay awake, especially in the previous, you know, pre-regulated times when, you know, truckers were known for, you know, popping the little white pills, um, just to kind of keep alert. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's a song that has been out there and it was made popular by a kind of a, you know, typical cowboy troubadour singer, uh, Dave Dudley, um, back in the early 60s. And people thought that Dave Dudley wrote it, but it was written by two guys that were actually linoleum haulers, flooring haulers out of, um, out of um, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And they were, in fact, affiliated with what be, would become known as the whole Muscle Shoals sound that, that Leonard Skinner sang about uh, the Swampers. Yeah. Um, 
and they were just two like partner drivers that were on their way up to Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, um, hauling flooring for a flooring company and out of um, Alabama. And they just wrote about their trip and it became a big hit. And it was the one big hit for, for the one, um, it was a duo that wrote it. And, and one of them, that was his only big hit. The other one wrote another one, which I think a lot of drivers could relate to, which is um, about a, uh, a driver, a rookie driver who just never, you know, got his license, hurried up onto the road and he can, he can drive straight. Okay. But he can't back up. And so the song is called give me 40 acres and I'll turn this rig around. Yeah. That's hysterical. Um, I've got a, a friend who's a lawyer and, uh, He's a lawyer in part because he failed his commercial driver's test. Uh, he tried to go work for J.B. Hunt, and uh, he ended up getting the, uh, <laughs> the the truck stuck in the mud, and he pissed off the, uh, the driver's test examiner so much uh, they had to walk back uh, through the mud to, to, to get back to where they were going, and uh, when we figured out that, you know, trucking wasn't for him and he became a lawyer. Well, we all have to settle. <laughs> well, and that, that's the interesting uh, thing. And, and the, um, it, I, I wonder if there's a sense in trucking um, similar to, you know, the uh, uh, many airline pilots will refer to uh you know, 2002 to 2012 as the lost decade, you know, in the decade after 9-11, uh, there were severe cuts. There were 35% pay cuts. Uh, no one felt appreciated. We didn't feel respected by the public. Uh, the um, and, and what you had to do at the start of your career to make it where you'd go and work for a regional airline, literally making less than what someone would make getting flipping burgers at McDonald's um, for a job that we felt had, you know, significant import uh, uh, was very demoralizing. And, and as I was listening to your most recent white line fever, um, about the uh, the six day haul from Muscle Shoals to Pittsburgh, something just got me reflecting. How I remember being a kid, you know, I was born in early seventies, you know, watching things like uh, B.J. McKay and uh, and Smokey and the Bandit, and I had this sense that you know trucking was cool. Hey, is that an eighteen wheeler? Is that a ten wheeler? Is that a is that does that truck have even more than 18 wheels and and you know and and one of the 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 tension i have in my head right now as i'm thinking about it is discerning how much of that was because i was a kid and things were coming from entertainment and music that were sort of glamorizing trucking and how much of that is times really have shifted but i'm i'm wondering if there's a shared sense among truckers that it's kind of like them against the world right now. There is. I think there's a great parallel between um, independent owner operators in particular and um, 
pilots. Um, I think that you've got a large piece of machinery, 80,000 pounds fully loaded, um, great deal of responsibility, um, especially once you've logged a few million miles on, you know, yeah. several years on the road, you, you know that if you're driving a cattle truck, when to juke to get all the cattle to shift in the right direction so that you don't tip it on the turn. Same thing with a, when you're hauling a tanker, when you're a tanker yanker, you got to know exactly how to, how to juke the load so that it works in your favor on the turn instead of against you. Yeah. Um, you know, as a pilot, you have to do the same kind of thing with your, with winds and, and shear and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they get disrespected very much. Um, you know, they, there are people that, you know, the, the, the retailers where they deliver will make them wait to unload. They won't want them to come in and use their bathrooms. You know, they're, they're made to wait in unpaid time at either end of the load to pick up or, or to unload. It's called um, lumping time, you know, or, or retention time. And so they, they get paid for the miles they drive and then the, mile, the, the hours that they sit there and wait for somebody to take the load off um, or to, to connect the load is unpaid time often. Then you've got all of these slip and fall lawyers, the tort lawyers that are after them to because they see the 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 narrative of the the big intimidating truck, you know, damaging the small vulnerable four wheeler. Even though four wheelers cause eighty five percent or more, they're at fault in an accident with a truck. Really, uh, most of the time, it's usually a small car doing something stupid that causes that that the trucker doesn't have the physical ability to react to in a reasonable time, but they, they create, they vilify the truckers for the sake of um, making an insurance claim, you know, in, in court. So sure. there's, there's just a lot of folks with their hand in a trucker's pocket, um, including brokers and other, other folks that, you know, are just looking for a way to make a buck and, and the average independent owner operator, um, you know, there's a few hundred thousand of those out there, they don't have any leverage. So they kind of have to, you know, who is it that um, I think Huey Lewis sings about, I'm taking what they're given because I'm working for a living. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's kind of how they feel. They um, they feel that everybody's got it in for them. Nobody respects them or treats them like the highway heroes they are. And so there, there's actually a big Facebook group out there called the Disrespected Trucker that has some really good feedback back and forth on um, and there's another one called Stop the Tires, which is, you know, kind of the, the trucker legend is that, you know, one of these days, the only way we're going to get hurt is if we all pull over and stop driving, then they'll have to listen. And unfortunately, there's mortgages to pay and food to put on kids to feed. And, yeah. you know, for every trucker that's willing to pull it over and, and stop to make a statement, there's 10 more willing to haul that load. So um, they they just don't have the leverage that they need to um to control their own lives. And so they do take what the market will bear. And sometimes that makes a hard living, you know, for, for what the market will bear. But I will say it is also a decent living for a lot of these, these independents that own their own truck. Um, they've developed, especially the ones that have developed a specialty such as heavy hauls or tanking, um, you know, or, or something that um, requires a certain level of skill, especially if they go out and they get their regular customers where they've contracted on their own and they have a locked in rate. Um, you know, that's a, a decent living. A lot of the folks that, that have to live off the spot market have to live off of, you know, 
take the rate that's that's on offer, um, that's a little harder, especially if they're trying to make a truck payment. You seem like you've got like a, a pretty strong emotional connection to truckers. What's the uh, what's the source of that affinity? Um, you know, I mentioned it when I talked about the authors earlier too. I mean, you know, when I work with an author, you know, there was an old saying, you know, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Yeah. Um, you have to, there's a thing called verisimilitude or truthfulness. You know, I think George Bush called it truthiness. Yeah. Um, the, um, I think to, to be believable, you have to be authentic and to be authentic, you have to like your subjects. And I truly like and respect truckers. We don't always have the same politics. We don't agree on a lot of things. Um, you know, they probably, you know, would have trouble understanding why people pay me my phony baloney salary to write instead of drive. I, I don't know that they would consider me to be as a productive member of society as they are. Um, yeah. But I respect them, you know, and I love the wisdom of experience. And I think truckers are people who are just full of the wisdom of experience. And so many times they're also the good Samaritan of, of, you know, of biblical days, you know, they're the person that will look out for others on the road. They're kind of the, the, the hall monitors of the road. And while they get vilified, um, they're also in many cases, the folks, the first ones to pull over and do what they can um, to help when they see trouble on the road. You know, you use the phrase there, the wisdom of experience. And uh, I was just talking about it with uh, my last guest, as far as the reason why I'm doing these podcasts. It was born out of a frustration. I was finding myself, uh, you know, this time last year, spending way too much time on social media, way too much time stoking up my own political opinions and and fervor and and don't get me wrong i think you know having a strong sense of your political opinions you know in in right measure in life is is you know part of being a rounded person but i i think for many people including myself the scales are wildly off balance you know uh if you're you know spending a lot of time every day listening to you know uh pundits on the right or the pundits on the left talking about why your political team is is in the right and the other is in the wrong and whatnot it's it's seriously a misguided sense of time and as far as you referencing the wisdom of experience what i'm trying to capture here or just you know create another reflecting point that can get put out put out in the in the ether there is just you know people having a a place to to come and look and and go like, hey, you know, uh, like what I think is interesting here is, here's a guy that makes his living, you know, writing stories and 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 telling stories and and you gain a sense of your sincerity uh, by doing it, and it's a way to live a life. You know, if we're spending our time putting all of our attention to, you know, why I should agree or disagree with ben shapiro you know uh, it, 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 it's who's that helping yeah and the you important know? thing to remember and we talked about it at the at the um at the opening of this segment is um the basic tool of a storyteller is conflict and 
a talking head on television doesn't care if you like what they're saying or you hate what they're saying, as long as you're tuning in to hear what they're saying. Exactly. Um, and it, the more they can, the more controversial they can be, the more successful they are because people get to watch the ads in between. And, you know, the, I, I think part of what we've gone through in the last few years that's most destructive is not what one party says or the other, but the success with which outside influences um, have been able to drive us from the middle to the extremes. And, and so much of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis exists in the middle. And the, the actual time that we spend in the extremes is very small. But right now we seem to define each other in the extremes and it, it creates a great deal of, of conflict and, um, and unrest and, and difficulty. I mean, when we start politicizing public health, when we start um, you know, fighting each other over one group's willingness to you know, wear a piece of cloth over their face to, to try to, in, in the name of helping people, you know, it becomes yeah. somehow a party affiliation. Um, you know, when we start fighting over vaccinations um, and, and trying to suggest that, you know, there's some greater agenda that, you know, and, you know, again, pick your, pick your extreme to which that agenda goes, whether we're tagging everybody with a chip or we're trying to sterilize people or what it is. It's just absolutely crazy. Um, but what is it at its core? It's we've got a disease, we've got a potential fix, and people on both sides actually want people to take the fix so that we don't spread it. You know, yeah. it's like if you see poison ivy, you don't go step in it because it's your right to step in it. Yeah. You know that it's going to make you itch and burn. So you, you leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, back to the theme of conflict, you know, for me, I, I feel like I have just in the past, I don't know, a couple of weeks to a month or so overcome the, the mental hurdles of being able to put this podcast out there, being able to actually do the interviews. I had so much uh, uh, fear of, or uh, allowing the the critical voices in my head to get in the way, um, dealing with imposter syndrome and and you know listening to those voices that would just say, well, "Why are you doing this with your time?" You know, um, did you experience anything like that at the beginning of you being a writer? Oh yeah, imposter syndrome is real. Uh, it's very real. I have it all. I still have it in some areas of my writing, mostly. When I'm trying to write fiction, I'm, I've, I've pretty much got nonfiction to, you know, I've done it so long, I can do it with my eyes closed and I, I've got the vibe for nonfiction, you know, and, and I make most of my money doing um, corporate communications work and things that are short term assignments that pay the bills. Um, but when I'm trying to write long form narrative, creating worlds and basically playing God, yeah. um, I feel very vulnerable and very um you know, the self-doubt tends to come in. Um, I think in, in your case, you know, it, it, it's very natural to, to have an inner critic. And then and the folks that teach writing and, and encourage writers and coach writers say, 
the first thing you have to do is fire your inner critic. And everybody has the right to tell a story or to ask questions. You play music, you play music because it serves you somehow in your soul, whether anyone else hears it or not. Yeah. Um, you know, I dabble at guitar. I used to play trombone. Um, what I love more than anything right now is to go um, build a deck out back or work with my hands. When I'm not working with my head, I want to go do something physically with my hands. I, I'm a beekeeper. Right? I, I raise honey. Um, you know, just something completely different from what I do for a living. And in your case, you fly planes and you make music because you love it and you feel like it, it gives you joy. In this case, this is helping you sort out the world. You, you have, it gives you a license to, to be curious and to, to ask people, you know, it's like, Brad, why should I, you know, I wonder, I want to talk to Brad, um, you know, how can I get him to spend an hour plus with me? Well, if I have a podcast, then there's a structure that gives me a license to ask Brad a bunch of nosy questions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. And I, and I found that, you know, um, that's the other impetus here. I am a really gregarious guy and I am highly extroverted. And it's like, I need some place to put my attention, yeah. you know, that, 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 that I hope will be you know, my highest hope for this, you know, is just that somebody else might lynch, you know, if, if someone else listens and is interested and entertained, well, then I've won. What would really make me just ecstatically joyful is if, if somebody shared this with someone they knew who was looking to become a writer mm -hmm. and it somehow helps them you know set forth down a productive path in life that's that's what i'm hoping for here and yeah. that's kind of why i'm choosing the people that i'm choosing because you know i i just think you know i, I i'll say we're all but i i know it's really about me i was just spending way too much time focusing that intention that, that attention in unhealthy places yeah. you know and and i it, and i think it's a struggle that we're all dealing with right now like you know i'm not one of these people who says oh i wish we could go back to the days before the internet and social media we as a collective you know society and a collective human consciousness uh, we got to figure out how to deal with this new technology healthily and this yeah. is this is this is my answer you know right now i'm teaching myself to make movies so that's my answer really Yep. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm producing a documentary on the Nebraska crew, which is where those oars come from behind me. Um, I did a, a three hour um, uh, literary festival last year where we couldn't meet in person. So I produced, I interviewed 30 writers and produced and did all of the after effects and Adobe Premiere and um, produced that. I'm basically having to do the segments that I do as part of the truck boss show. And after a, a series I do on atypical learners for Beacon College called A World of Difference. I've just learned to become a storyteller in video as well. And that's kind of where I'm stretching and growing. And I think as long as you're doing something to feed your soul, in addition to putting the cheese on the macaroni for a living, yeah. um, you know, I think you're you're on the right track. Will you do me a favor? Will mm -hmm. you send me links, photos, 
any media of the stuff you're looking on that, that you'd like, uh, you know, kind of thrown out there sure. into the world sure. and it'll help me with my liner notes for this, for this episode. All right. Well, Scott, it has been an absolute pleasure and I appreciate you thinking of me. Um, I wish I had had a chance to know your dad or to talk to him for the, for the book. I know that, um, that Dick Vox thought the world of him and in fact, dedicated the book to him. You know, that's the last thing that I'll say. And, you know, I might even get teary eyed. Uh, I remember, you know, what a gift this was when I received it. And I, and I shared the dedication to one of my friends and the dedication of the book says to Jim, to James Corley, a good friend and fine aviator. And my friend who's a, who's a fellow pilot um, for United Airlines, he, he just commented on, you know, what a perfect line that was, you know, just the, uh, the economy of words. And he said that that's, that, that, that's all he would want for, you know, a colleague to, to say about him. And, and I really, uh, really appreciated that. It was very cool to, to hear this book and, and read your account and, you know, hear this story that I've heard my whole life from a fresh and different perspective. And, and, and thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. Fair skies and tailwinds, my friend. All right. Thanks a lot, Brad. Bye -bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.